everyone, and welcome to the I Don't Know Show with Joe. I'm Joe, and I don't know much about biohacking, but my guest, Avisha Nesaver, does. Avisha, thank you for joining the show. Thanks for having me. First off, what is biohacking? Well, lots of different people would give you many different definitions uh-huh. for that word. If you do a basic Google search, you'd probably get a lot of articles about people grafting microchips underneath their skin or trying to in some way do prostheses and or even modify their own genome. That's like the sort of media forward facing version. Although these days you're going to start getting a bit more of a blend. The way I would define it is making use of the cutting edge medical research to optimize health and performance Mm -hmm. with an emphasis on N equals one experimentation. Mm -hmm. So the key difference there is what the mainstream medical establishment does is they will not make any sort of recommendation. Nothing goes through the FDA without multiple stages of clinical trials, Mm -hmm. randomized, placebo controlled, and those are all fantastic. However, there is a tremendous amount of research being done that has not quite made its way through all of those trials yet. Mm-hmm. And a difficulty with the clinical trial is, let's say you do a clinical trial and you have 100 participants. You're trying to treat a particular condition. You try a new compound. Five of them get better, and none of the placebo do. But a successful treatment rate of 5 in 100 might not be enough to get things through clinical trials. Therefore, the drug gets shelved. What a biohacker would look at is... What are the characteristics of those five? Am I one of them? Would this sort of thing have a plausible mechanism to therefore apply it to me? And is there any sort of danger? What are the other considerations involved? But essentially, can I take this thing and maybe Mm -hmm. apply it to myself in an N equals one experiment done with hopefully the proper safety considerations? If that thing is available for, like, how would you get your hands on it if it's something that has not been released to the public in some way, shape or form? Well, for example, there's a lot of different herbs that mm-hmm. you have studies done, but there's only a handful of studies with fairly low power because mm-hmm. if something is an existing herb, then it cannot be patented. Therefore, what a pharmaceutical company will do is try and isolate an extract of that herb that has the effect. But if they can't do that or while they're doing that, you can still buy it in bulk and use it mm-hmm. yourself and it might be part of traditional Chinese medicine. It might be part mm-hmm. of Ayurvedic medicine. It might be have been used for many years in various different contexts, but it has not made its way through proper clinical trials because there is no monetary incentive to do so. However, for many of these, there are trials that have been done in academia mm-hmm. that give you a indicator that, yeah, this it might actually be effective and we might understand different ways that it can work, but it hasn't made its way to actually being a drug yet. And there's a tremendous realm of compounds like that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so... Before we get into all those details, I just I want to draw like the boundaries around what is and what isn't biohacking. So on the one side, you have regular um, dieting, uh, getting good sleep, meditation, supplementation, uh, exercise, things that I would generally just consider to be taking care of yourself. Um, But maybe they're not like the cutting edge things that are studied under these particular conditions that are are not yet known to to be of use for the masses they might be of use in particular situations um right so it like it, is that kind of the line on that side of it there are a handful of different boundaries that i would draw and categories that i would describe first there's the split between on the axis between sickness and health mm-hmm. 
typical medicine only comes in when you start tipping from health to sickness. However, anyone who has seen the difference between your average American pulled out of a lineup and your average professional athlete knows that there is just as much space mm -hmm. on the healthy side of the spectrum as there is on the sick side of the spectrum. Right. So when it comes to biohacking, there are the things that are attempting to try and treat various medical conditions, health problems. And then there are the things that are trying to take your normal baseline and improve it, optimize it, make it better. Right. And those are two sides of the same coin, but there's really not as much data in the making it better side of things because that's not billable. Right. So that's one axis with which to rate these things. Mm -hmm. Then we can talk about the different categories. So I would break it down into consumables, which mm -hmm. are things like diet, things like different supplements, herbs, medications. All of these are things that you consume and they can have some biological effect. Mm -hmm. Then there are practices, things like meditation, your exercise routines, uh, anything that you are doing that does not involve consuming something. Mm -hmm. And then there's a bit of a blurry line between that and what I would call therapies. A practice is something that I can do, a habit, a mental technique, whereas a therapy is something that uses an outside tool or piece of equipment, like a sauna or a pulsed electromagnetic field device mm -hmm. or a cold plunge. These are th things that use tools that allow us to in some way impact or tweak our biology. Gotcha. So if, if we go into each of those categories, let's say we, we go to um, diet, which I think you was in the consumables category. Yeah. Um, like what would be an example of a diet that is just a healthy diet versus a diet that would be biohacking? There are lots of considerations to that question. So when it comes to diet and biohacking, I would say that the biohacking types of diets are ones that are a little bit more experimental. Mm -hmm. So saying eat a Mediterranean diet is probably the most well-researched general recommendation for overall improvement of health. Mm -hmm. That's something that many doctors will tell you and no biohacker would disagree when saying, oh no, that's not a good way to eat. When you start getting into things like intermittent fasting, which mm -hmm was a fad for a while and now is really starting to drop off based on some recent research. So I would oh. be hesitant about who to recommend that in what context. Things like the ketogenic diet started off in a more niche sort of sector and then became very mainstream. Most people do not use it in the way that it should be used mm -hmm. and need to know how to properly apply it. Um, if you're talking about taking a diet that you're trying to optimize for, say, maximum muscle gain. Mm -hmm. Like, how can I put on the max amount of actual weight while trying to minimize the amount of inflammation in my body and also focus on lean mass gains as opposed to just overall mass? So getting into the weeds there is something that a biohacker would be more likely to do rather than just say, oh, I'm going to eat less to lose weight. Gotcha. It's all about getting very technical. Right. And like, like a very more nuanced diet for specific outcomes. Uh, and yeah. So I'm actually curious, what is the recent research around intermittent fasting? Because uh, I was hearing mostly good things about it. Um, so yeah, I'm curious what, what the new research says. So there have been a handful of studies to come out recently that further the... Oh, let me back up. Intermittent fasting has been shown to be associated with weight loss. 
Mm-hmm. I just turned myself into weird feedback. Yeah, uh, intermittent yeah, fasting has been shown to be associated with weight loss. And for a while, there was a large debate as to whether or not there was something intrinsic in the feeding window that helped to lose weight or if it was simply just that you're eating less within that window. Mm-hmm. And it's now been pretty conclusively shown that if you do a isocaloric diet mm-hmm. between intermittent fasting and not, you're going to lose the same amount of weight. Mm-hmm. So if you're eating 2,400 calories in eight hours, 2,400 calories over 16 hours, you're going to gain the same amount of weight, lose the same amount of weight, depending on your starting physiology. Mm-hmm. However, it does seem to be the case that intermittent fasting, especially with a morning to afternoon feeding window rather than evening feeding window, takes advantage of certain things we know about biology that will make you less likely to eat the same amount of calories. Mm-hmm. So if you're not being very careful about controlling for car- calories and you are eating only within an eight-hour feeding window starting more in the morning, it is fairly likely that without making any other interventions, you will end up eating fewer calories than someone who is not, not doing that. And that does seem to be pretty well established. And if that is your primary goal, which is to lose weight, and you want to make a simple adjustment, it is a tool for doing that. However, one challenge is that if you are trying to put on muscle, it seems like an intermittent fasting sort of eating schedule might actually be detrimental. Interesting. And partially because it's hard to get enough calories and enough protein, and there's only so much protein your body can handle at a given time, so you really need to be spacing that out throughout the day to be able to get the maximum amount and maximize hypertrophy. Interesting. What about other benefits people have said in, like – um, I think people have said that there are benefits for sleep or energy having to do with, I don't know, a circadian rhythm maybe. I don't, I don't exactly remember, but... There are a lot of different benefits that people have claimed to be associated with mm-hmm. intermittent fasting, such as, yeah, better sleep. They say that it puts you into a greater state of uh, like cellular autophagy, cleaning up those cells that are sort of already flagging in terms of their health. There isn't really any good data to back that up. In general, in order to actually really boost autophagy, you have to do a fast that's like three or four days long rather than just 16 hours long. So there's really no evidence showing that in the just restricted feeding windows you're going to get that. Mm -hmm. A lot of the initial hype around intermittent fasting came from some rodent studies, which showed that in a rodent study, you might get some longevity benefits from Mm -hmm. doing it. But there hasn't really been any good follow-ups with humans that have panned out with that so that's one of the reasons why it's dropped off in popularity a little bit interesting yeah that's that's crazy i I think like also the longevity studies are interesting because i i i guess you you wouldn't really know until much later like because you're looking at indicators of longevity but you don't know actual longevity and in the meantime the science tends to change a lot when new research comes out (laughs) yeah unfortunately it's really difficult to do longevity studies on humans because it takes a long long time in general the best data we have on longevity in humans tends to be retrospective analyses like there are certain ongoing studies that have been going on since the 50s since the Mm -hmm. 60s where they're gathering a lot of data on these large cohorts and we can see okay who was doing what and let's try to analyze this and figure out which things led towards greater longevity versus not Gotcha. And then there are the surrogate markers. So you can say within this elderly cohort is the incidence of cardiovascular disease lowered, is the incidence of neurological disease reduced, 
Is their just overall like blood markers better? Is their physical performance better? And there's a lot of different hallmarks of aging that when you start adding them up are pretty good mm-hmm. indicators that even if that even if theoretically they didn't improve lifespan at all, which would be unlikely if they are all improving, at least they're definitely gonna improve health span because they're highly correlated right. with just being able to move and live and actually enjoy life. Right. Um yeah, and back to um, the boundary conditions. So on the other side, you have things that you you touched on earlier, uh, things like uh, like gene editing, like like CRISPR type of stuff, or also uh, embedding magnets or NFC chips in in your finger, or tattooing certain types of electrical circuits. Um, like, are those considered biohacking? Those are not really considered biohacking within the biohacking community, mm-hmm. so to speak. It's one, I would say that maybe the CRISPR stuff technically would be, but it's so far out there that no one really can do it. So it barely counts. Mm-hmm. Embedded microchips. That's more in the modding community, like modding, body mods. That's the word. Yeah. It's mods. It's a very different sort of thing. So I, I would not count that. Like most people who would identify as a biohacker would not actually have anything to do with that side of the spectrum. So that would be a, a different thing called bi- body modding. Body modding or bio modding? I'd say body modding. Body modding. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that's also cool, but yeah, it's a different type of thing. <laughs> um, cool. So, what got you into biohacking? What was your first exposure to the world of biohacking? I think it was probably the book, The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. Wow. Where he essentially went and viewed himself as an N equals 1 subject to experiment with a lot of different health interventions and see how he could improve improve his own health well-being. Mm-hmm. So he would go and figure out, okay, they, they, this is the diet that has been effective for me with weight loss. This is the best for actually like losing those last 4% of body fat. These are the different ways of improving mobility and like cardiovascular health and essentially viewing himself as a test subject and making careful interventions, measuring and essentially applying the scientific method towards his own health. Mm -hmm. And I read that and it resonated pretty strongly with me as a scientist who also enjoys high performance and well, I've always been focused, even like way before then, on different ways of like improving my mental performance, academic performance, all of that. My typical approach towards health was, well, I'll go to the gym and I'll not eat too much bad stuff. But this was a window into, okay, there are ways of actually making use of pretty cutting-edge research, combining that with N equals 1 experimentation, and doing things to improve my own performance beyond the standards. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And how do you know how long to carry out an experiment before deciding whether or not that should be your permanent practice? Well, I'd say nothing should ever be a permanent practice because the body is changing a lot Mm -hmm. and things need to be tweaked pretty continuously. However, it depends on what the intervention is. So, for example, if I'm experimenting with an intervention to improve my sleep, then within a week or two, I should be able to tell if something's having an impact or not because the cycle of sleep is pretty rapid. You... If you don't sleep a lot one night, you will sleep more the next night. If you exercise one day, it'll impact your sleep. If you eat a totally different diet one day, it might impact your sleep. And this is something that, especially if you're using stuff to measure it, you can have a pretty rapid iteration cycle where you try something, you try it for enough nights to average out 
any sort of other externalities, but you should be able to tell whether or not something is working. And that's a pretty rapid iteration. However, for something like muscle gain, I'd say it's really hard to do anything shorter than a month, but really three to six months is a better experimental window because it takes a while to put on muscle. Similarly with weight loss or weight gain, it's when you're talking about body recomposition, that takes time. But we know that you can have a decent amount of body recomp in three to six months. So I'd say that's like a initial starting window. If I were to try to experiment with lowering my risk of cardiovascular disease, that's a totally different ballgame. Right. But I might even be able to do that within a one to six month range, depending on what I'm doing, because you can measure things like VO2 max as a measure of cardiovascular health. Mm -hmm. You can measure blood pressure. You can measure... I don't know, uh, pulse ox won't really do it. Basically, there's a lot of different metrics mm -hmm. that you can take. And as long as you can show a demonstrable improvement beyond the noise, beyond the standard deviation of that given metric, then you can view that as a successful experiment. That makes sense. And, and do you use any tools to track your experiments, like to track... Uh you know, all, all the different things that you're trying, all the different variables, the results that you're getting on a daily or hourly basis, or however frequently you're checking on different metrics, like use any specific tools or just kind of write them down or keep track of them? Well, I use like an Aura Ring and a Fitbit to measure sleep and physical activity. I have gone through periods where I've worn a continuous glucose monitor to measure my blood sugar response to various foods, experimenting with that, as well as the response to physical activity. Uh, I will measure my weight. I'll measure my blood pressure. Generally, it's just using spreadsheets to track it. There are a bunch of tools like apps and websites that will allow you to basically create a new experiment and test an intervention and record, but there is none that I currently use on a regular continuous basis because I prefer to just track things myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, awesome. And for the aura ring, cause I have one as well and I still suck at sleeping. Like what have you learned from wearing the aura ring? Um, like what specific things have you been able to change that have helped? The difference between my going to sleep at 1230 or 11 p.m. is a 20 to 30 percent shift in the amount of deep sleep that I get in a given night. Mm -hmm. That's something that I've repeatedly demonstrated via the Aura data. Mm -hmm. uh, having any alcohol within a three or four hour window before bed will drastically impact many of my mm -hmm. sleep metrics. <laughs> Interestingly, I was able to tell that my body was like immune system was highly activated and I was fighting something off. When I got COVID, mm -hmm. roughly 36 hours before I felt any symptoms, I saw in my aura data that I had a lowered heart rate variability, increased respiratory rate, and slightly elevated body temperature. And that was like significant shift from my baseline to the point where I knew ba just based on that after waking up that I'm dealing with something. And wow. then the next day I tested positive. Wow. That's yeah. I think my, my baseline is so all over the place that I, I, I mean, I, I definitely had that when I had COVID, but I had that a million other times also. <laughs> <laughs>
That's that's one problem. The the, the, the way I realized that I had COVID the second time was because I had that uh, throat coat tea, which usually tastes like garbage. And I'm like, this doesn't yeah. taste as bad as it normally does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's one indicator. Yeah. I've also used the Oura Ring just to test a bunch of different sleep interventions. Like, a lot of brands sent me CBD oil uh-huh. to try and test, and I tested it, and it does not impact my sleep at all. Yeah. Yeah, CBD either doesn't impact my sleep or makes it worse. Something that helped, interestingly, was full-spectrum hemp capsules. does not affect me at all as well. Yeah. But, it wasn't consistent, but it helped more than the CBD. <laughs> I believe it. There are definitely enough people that it helps that I think it can have an impact. Especially my guess would be that if you are someone who has a above baseline level of systemic inflammation, then I think CBD can be helpful at bringing mm. that down. And in so doing, it might be beneficial to someone's sleep if they are having other issues. Right. I don't think I deal with anything like that. So for me... It wasn't really much of a shift. Right. What uh, What's a simple biohack that you have done that you'd be comfortable recommending for most people to incorporate in the, into their lives? Hmm. One easy one would be to take L-theanine alongside your coffee. Mm-hmm. That's a compound that multiple studies have shown when taken alongside coffee, it essentially reduces the jittery aspect of the caffeine Mm -hmm. and helps to somewhat improve the cognitive aspect of it. So it's very synergistic. It helps to sort of round it off and boost what you're getting from the caffeine and reducing just the the negative downsides. Interesting. I feel like I've heard and you sorry, how much do you take? 200 milligrams in my coffee every morning. Gotcha. Now, I was going to say that I, I think I could be confusing L-theanine with something else, but do people use L-theanine as a sleep supplement? Yes, it can help to improve GABA production mm-hmm. and has a bit of a calming effect. That's sort of why when taken alongside caffeine, the calming aspect will reduce that sort of jittery side effect of the caffeine while not actually – it doesn't put you to sleep – but it does have a bit of a calming impact on your nervous system. And when taken before sleep, some people find it helpful. Gotcha. And then what, what's an extreme biohack that you've done that we're not recommending anybody try? It could be risky, but you decided to go ahead with that experiment and it might be interesting to talk about. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. Risky, extreme would not recommend to others. Well, maybe you would recommend to others in particular circumstances, but it wouldn't be for general one-size-fits-all recommendation. Um, let me think for a second. I've definitely combined a lot of different compounds in just experimenting with what impacts me. And in general, very few things shift my baseline, so I'm extremely resistant to feeling anything from anything. That means I have a very high caffeine tolerance. I have a very high alcohol tolerance. I have a very high cannabinoid tolerance. I have a high tolerance to pretty much everything. I've tried almost every nootropic (laughs) under the sun and have experienced almost nothing from any of them. I have combined like seven different nootropics in various stacks that I've gotten, mixed it with a little bit of nicotine and methylene blue and 
that whole combination with some caffeine does shift me a little bit above the baseline, but not much. So caffeine plus nicotine plus methylene blue. I take the nicotine. Plus like um, five other capsules. Uh, not capsules. Lozenges. I very rarely actually use anything of the sort. It's more experimentation than part of a daily routine. In general, my philosophy with regards to nootropics is the brain operates pretty well on a daily basis by itself. There are things that might be able to boost it above baseline performance, but you're probably going to have a cost and it adapts very quickly. Mm. So I would never want on a daily basis to be taking the whole stack of different brain boosting things because if you're stimulating, then at after a little while, that'll just be your normal, and then you have to take it to just have normal function, right? Which is not great. That makes sense. That, the flip side would be if you are deficient in things, then that could be reducing your function, and you absolutely want to be taking whatever is required to eliminate any deficiencies, fix any problems to get you back up to your normal baseline peak. Gotcha. But how do you how do you increase your baseline? As like a permanent, you know, long-term baseline, not as a just a short-term thing where you're going to have the cost. But how do you actually build up your baseline? That's a very good question. And the biggest, well, the easiest way to do it that we have really good evidence behind, it's probably just nothing crazy biohacky instead it's getting a consistently good night's sleep and significant amounts of both cardiovascular and resistance training like cardiovascular exercises and resistance training all of those boost the baseline of your body your health and performance to a higher level similarly eating a diet that is very rich in a lot of different colored things fruits vegetables grass-fed meats high quality like animal fats and proteins all of that means you have all the resources required to actually function at a high level. Combine that with the right sorts of exercise and potentially add in a few things to help lower the added stressors and inflammation that is brought upon, brought upon by an overall like uh, you know modern environment where there are a lot more – a higher toxic burden. Mm-hmm. But basically you're getting rid of – you're doing everything to supply – your body with the right resources you are doing everything you can to just use progressive overload to improve your function in general and you are mitigating any sort of external stressors that's going to be the basic recipe for peak normal human performance then the question is what can actually boost you past that and that's where you start getting into the question of how can we as humans enhance performance beyond what evolution gave us and it's a very interesting question. Some of the ways that seem promising so far are things like electric stimulation of the brain. Mm-hmm. You are literally like TCDS, transcranial direct stimulation. It's something that has been pretty repeatedly shown to like by running a very small electric current through different parts of the brain while performing different tasks. It can improve working memory. It can improve reaction time. It can improve various different types of cognition. Yeah, I, I a actually am like about to. Time. Oh, go on. I said I, I bought a product like that one time, but you said you were about to do what? I am about to participate in a study uh-huh. where they're going to be sending me a headset, which is basically uh-huh. a mobile EEG that works with audio feedback to try and entrain in different brain waves to improve flow state 
like it's like, time a, spent like a neurofeedback uh, device. Yeah, basically. But with electric stimulation. It's this one is not with electric stimulation. This one is trying to use audio. Okay. To help just overall shift the brain into a, a different sort of brain state. Wow. Okay. So I've done both of those. Um, the first one, the electric stimulation one, I got a headband that went, it was like an L. I don't know if it's, if they all look the same or if there's a specific one, but I didn't, I didn't enjoy how, how it felt. It was just like, it was in a pleasant sensation. I just didn't enjoy it. (laughs) And I did the, uh, I did neurofeedback because that's supposed to help with cluster headaches. But, um, I don't know if the lady was doing it right. She just like hooked me up to like electrodes and I was just like listening to music, but I wasn't wearing headphones. I was just playing from a speaker and, and I, I would just fall asleep each time. And I, I said like, like, is, am I supposed to fall asleep? Is this really doing anything? And like, I didn't really, she didn't have a very that scientific sound answer like for me. That doesn't like working with a good practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. So I stopped it cause I was like, I don't, this doesn't sound very scientific. But I'm sure there are signs behind it, but I don't think she was doing it right. <laughs> Neurofeedback is a very broad spectrum. Yeah. And there are things that work well. There are things that don't. There are people who can make use of it for particular purposes that can be helpful. But I've seen a lot of junk neurofeedback as well. Yeah. So have you done it before or will you be testing this device the first time you're doing neurofeedback? I've done neurofeedback type things before. Mm -hmm. I've gotten a QEEG and then gone and used some like clinical neurofeedback stuff to try and and train different brain states. I periodically meditate using a muse, which itself is neurofeedback. (laughs) Except I don't, uh, I don't use it that frequently, but yeah, I also have the old version. I think the new version is a lot better. Yeah, I still need to upgrade to the new version. I'm going to try to get them to send me one. It was a good idea. You know, it really got me to meditate more. And now I, now I have an app that I pay for. I pay for Sam Harris's Waking Up app. Um, it's just things to get me motivated, you know, whether it's the Muse because I get that immediate feedback, whether it's Sam because I really think that he's really, like, going into the science behind it and I trust him. So there's, like... Uh, I think it's, yeah, just being set up to do the meditation, um, I think is good, but, uh, that's cool. So, so, so you're always testing out these products. Um, and then like what happens after you test them? Do, have you seen anything really promising that is, uh, available for mass consumption yet? Um, at the moment, most of the things that are available are essentially just tools to make you more likely to do a behavior and give you a very slight boost in it. I've yet to see anything that is a night and day shift. We're really at the very, very early stages of having any level of understanding of the brain and how to impact its function. So most of the things that are being tried are, if they find something that works, it's only works for some people, it only works a small amount, and they're not even sure exactly why it works. And then it's just a matter of, like, some people will use it regularly, but 
it's pretty pretty tough to find something that will consistently boost you above baseline on a regular basis and you're not going to adapt back down. That's the big problem. The brain is so unbelievably plastic that anything you use to try and improve its function that's exogenous and sort of propping it up, it'll very quickly just get used to. It'll say, oh, well, you're thanks for the help, sir. I will now lose a little bit of my natural ability to do this without you. Right, right. I hear that. What do you think about Neuralink? You think that has legs? Do you think it's going to be a good thing? Do you think it's going to be a bad thing? I mean, obviously, for some people, it will be good. But overall, like, what 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 are your thoughts? Overall, it is a worthwhile avenue of exploration when it comes to technology. We do absolutely want to figure out how to interface brain and tech better. But like for a lot of different reasons, you know, we want to be able to have fully immersive VR. If you could do a brain hookup, that would be great. We want to be able to help people with Alzheimer's and dementia. We right. want to be able to extend our own cognitive function far beyond what we currently can have, both in terms of current performance and in terms of degeneration. The greater we understand the function of the brain, the better we'll be able to do all of that. So absolutely, I like it that companies are doing it. And if they can find ways to monetize this early on, fantastic. Yeah, and I was I was listening to a podcast with a guy. Um, that's 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 uh, I guess the lead uh, developer of that. But um, yeah, it sounds like their their first use cases are going to be um, I don't know if it was Alzheimer's or people with uh, missing uh, limb functionality that you know will enable them to either control an exogenous limb or uh, just directly interface with a computer or something like that. Uh, like that's that seems to be the first use case, like as a as a medical device. Um, yeah. But obviously, there's a lot more potential there. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's good or bad though, because like it's <laughs> it's it could it could it could be the next stage of our evolution, right? We could be a, a like a ro- robotic humanoid type of uh, sim- symbiotic being. Um, so, I mean, I, it might be the future. <laughs> I could easily see it. I could easily see 50 years from now, you'll have people with implanted things that will allow for tech interfacing. At the same time, you're going to get a lot of purely organic modifications that will start being possible. Yeah. And some combination thereof. How do, how do you see biohacking evolving in the future? Is is Neuralink the, the next big thing? Or are there other things that uh, we should be aware of that are coming up uh in the biohacking space there's a lot of stuff that's being tested but i would say biohacking is essentially trying a large number of things that work for some people don't work for others and are are just in advance of where medicine currently stands the target that is going to hopefully become widespread i'd say essentially is precision medicine It's Mm -hmm. the ability to take a large number of inputs, a large number of variables ranging from your own genetics to very detailed blood testing, measuring hundreds and thousands of different types of individual biomarkers Mm -hmm. and saying, based on this full spectrum, this full exosome of what I currently am, the state of my health, what can I do to bring it back to baseline and then continue to move it forwards? Mm -hmm. And that's what people are doing within the biohacking space is getting all these tests that you can't currently get ordered by your standard insurance and using them to try and tweak performance in various ways. But the hope is that in not 
in the not too distant future, we will be able to do the same thing in the mainstream medical establishment. And it's the biohackers who will be taking it and trying all the latest stuff that hasn't actually made its way through to the mainstream to actually do it. So essentially, that's what it is. Biohacking is just going to be the people who with a higher ability, well, a higher risk tolerance. Right. Willing to experiment on themselves, to try things, and hopefully just have a overall higher health baseline based on all of that experimentation. But you also get some of the uh, unfortunate times when things backfire. Right, right. And, and like, I mean, things will inevitably be inevitably backfire, right? I mean, I, I work with a software vendor, and I, I mean, this is an extreme case, but there's literally every every upgrade has a million bugs and like if they if they were building Neuralink, we'd be in trouble <laughs> so because yeah. it's in your brain so you can't really afford to have those kinds of bugs well that's why i am very averse to any sort of implanted tech because it's very difficult to implant something and the rate at which things are changing right now Sure, you could do software updates, but it'll be really hard to do hardware updates. Yeah. So I want to wait until we've got a really multi-purpose, reliable piece of hardware that then, sure, it'll have software updates. But we're, we're very far from something that is advanced enough that I would want to put inside of me. Right. But we're going to have to put it inside of someone. Someone's going to have to do it first because <laughs> there's no way to know if it works just based well, on animal studies. Or, yeah. we are starting in the medical space right. with people who need it. Exactly. For me, yeah, I, there's no reason for me to go and implant any sort of neurological, technological interface in my arm. But if I didn't have a hand right. and I wanted to attach another one, then absolutely, it's totally worth it for me to implant it there. Similarly, you've got uh, patients with epilepsy who have electrodes implanted on their brain. I have a sibling that has been doing research in that way. She actually was just able to run a study to be able to go and like create little, well, basically using patients with these implanted electrodes and zap them in safe manners and measure their brain response. And that's something you can't do. Like you can measure the brain response so much better on the surface of the brain rather than through the skull that it was possible to get a much more detailed output. Mm. And that's only possible because they had to have surgery to implant these things because it was necessary to help treat their epilepsy. Right. So... When it comes to edge cases, you're going to have the people who absolutely need it, and that pushes things forward. Right. That makes sense. What about um, all, all these new studies that are being done on different types of uh, psychedelics or, or other types of um, substances that um, have been used traditionally for thousands of years, but now there's, they're doing all these studies on them, and, and they're finding a lot of promising things. I don't know. I, I think that falls under biohacking, right? Because there are studies. Yeah, it does. And what I would say to those is these are substances that, yes, many of them have been used for thousands of years in cultural contexts. Some have not. Some have been discovered in a lab in the last century and now are experimented with. But in general, when it comes to the whole family of psychedelic compounds, the commonality is often putting the brain into a highly neuroplastic state where neurons are firing in ways that they do not normally do. They're making connections that are not normally found. And the question is, what is the actual long-term potential health impact of that? 
And what we're seeing is it can be used as a tool to create shifts in perception, mm-hmm. whether or not that's being able to recall some state that you found and just like the ability to recall something means you can now try to strive towards it in your normal brain function. So trying to use that as a target where otherwise you wouldn't have that is one way that it can have an impact. But we've seen multiple instances where right now like uh, psilocybin is being used to treat treatment-resistant depression. It's being used to treat PTSD. It's being used to treat opioid addiction. And in all of these, it seems to have the ability when used properly with the proper assistance, so a guided session, mm-hmm. you can actually have a very significant impact. It's like a, it's the numbers are something along the lines of at 70% complete remission from the PTSD symptoms after one to three mm-hmm. uh, therapist-assisted sessions of psilocybin. Yeah. And that's amazing because that's far better than what any existing pharmaceutical has been able to do because essentially you're saying let's put the brain into a state where in an fMRI it looks like that of a two-year-old where you can form new connections constantly. And if you guide it to figure out what connections need to be severed and which ones need to be reformed, it's an amazing tool. Right. Of course, you also have to be careful because if you form some bad connections in that highly neuroplastic state, then – it's not that the compound itself is extremely dangerous, like it will attack your physiology, but you can create some bad things that stick around for a while just as easily as you can get rid of them. Right. You, you could create new traumas that you'll then have a post-traumatic response to. <laughs> yeah. Do not take magic mushrooms and go to a haunted house like that. <laughs> that's true. Uh, that, that sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> Unless you want to see ghosts. As it might if you're... be for those watching you. Right, yeah. You might, yeah. <laughs> you might, yeah. Um, very interesting. So earlier you mentioned about getting the baseline. You know, there's a bunch of basic things. Um, good sleep, good diet, exercise, cardio, and, and resistance. Um, and the thing I always struggle with is the sleep part because, you know, I, I can force myself to have a good diet. I could force myself to exercise, but I can't force myself to have a good night's sleep. It just doesn't listen. <laughs> it's true. There's no di- there. You have to always go with the indirect solutions. So let me ask: Is your problem waking up during the night? Is your problem not falling asleep rapidly, or something totally different? I've gone through many problems over the years, and as I've solved some problems, others have persisted. Currently. I have a very, um, I have like a routine for going to bed that usually works. Once in a while it doesn't. So I'm usually falling asleep. Problem is that I'm tossing and turning all night. And I wake up and I'm exhausted. And, and I look at my aura ring and I have no correlation. Sometimes I have good REM, good deep sleep. Sometimes I have one, not the other. Sometimes I have neither. Um, but usually I, I'm not seeing any correlation. I, I see correlations a lot with the amount of times it says I woke up throughout the night, um, and how tired I am. <laughs> That's like a big okay. indicator. Um, but yeah, I guess the, what is the temperature of the room that you're sleeping in? It's currently 70 degrees. Um, I wish I was able to precisely control the temperature, but 
you know, it's plus or minus a few degrees from that, <laughs> generally, uh, lately anyway. If you could manage to drop it down to like 62 to 64, that could be a significant shift. I mean, there's also the more expensive options, which are the whole class of chili pad, oiler, eight sleep, like any of these mattresses or mattress pads that circulate cold water under you. But one of the really, really strong levers that can be pulled when it comes to sleep quality throughout the night is often temperature. And that's one thing that even if you could find a way to just experiment with it for a bit, like if they've got a money back guarantee, get it, try it out for a couple weeks and see if it works. If it does, then that is a worthwhile expenditure. If it's not, take them up on that guarantee. Right. Yeah, I've tried a bunch of things, but I have not tried any of those those pads. Um, so maybe I'll look into that. What's the correlation with your physical activity level during the day? Um, it, it's it's tough. I feel like if I I feel like if I'm sedentary, I, I actually fall asleep more easily than if I exercised. Um, I guess I just like my have a faster heart rate or something, but uh, what's the timing of your exercise? I try not to do it too late. Um, when when I was working more remotely, I was able to to do it, you know, towards the morning. But now it's um, I don't know, around five or six generally. I would be very curious to see what would happen in terms of the frequency of night wake-ups and just overall quality of sleep if you were to, on a given day, triple your existing cardiovascular exercise, like spend an hour on an exercise bike or treadmill or something, and then do a leg workout. Okay. Do both and see just how much you wake up over the course of the night there's a very high likelihood that you would see a reduction. So increase the cardio by a lot. Yeah, think about it. If you go hiking, like if you were going backpacking for a day, the end of the night, you pitch your tent, you go to sleep, I bet you would not be tossing and turning all night. I bet you would sleep like the dead. I When I camp, I do not sleep. I suck at sleep. If there's like any like stimulus that can keep camp, me awake. I said backpacking. Yeah, okay, okay. Walking up a mountain with a pack on your back. Right. It is very different. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, would would you, does yoga count as cardio? Because I was like, nope, sweating a lot. <laughs> nope, not at all. It's interesting because, um, you know, when I'm resistance training, I don't really sweat that much. And cardio, I could sweat depending on the length of time. Yoga, I'm like dripping sweat. Interesting, and this is not Bikram. This is just yeah, standard. Yoga. Yeah, I would. N- I'll never do hot yoga ever, ever, ever again. It's the worst thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> I agree with you. I hate it. I did a month of it, and it was terrible. A month of it. Holy shit! <laughs> I, I pay for a month. I'm going to do a month. Uh, but, uh, yeah, not uh, did not renew that membership. Yeah, yeah. No, that was that was horrible. I always thought I hated it, but now I know I hate it. Um. All right. Yeah, good things to try. I know once you recommended I take PS100, which which I've been doing, and it, it actually it has increased my REM sleep because my REM sleep was frequently 
quite low. Uh, but when I take it, it does seem a bit higher. But regardless, I still feel really tired. But it, like definitely numbers-wise, it it does do something there. Okay, incremental benefits. Yeah. Um, what else would you recommend in terms of sleep for not just for me, but just for anybody? What are some good sleep habits? All the standard ones would be a have a consistent routine so that you have a actual circadian rhythm similarly make sure to get light exposure from sunlight in the morning within an hour of waking up if you can get at least 10-15 minutes outdoors that will be very helpful cut out any sort of bright lights in the several hours before bed you can use just red light to like minimize any sort of blue exposure but what is even more important than color is intensity so limit any sort of bright light in the several hours before bed all the lights in my apartment just slowly dim and shift towards the orange-red spectrum as things get later. Yeah, Temperature is a very big one. Different people have different relationships with noise. I find that white noise is very good, whereas staccato is pretty terrible. One technique that I will sometimes use if I, if I find that my mind is racing is I have a pair of like uh, sleep headphones that I will take either some type of fiction put it down to a really really low speed at the lowest audio level i could possibly pay attention to and set it going on a sleep timer and i find that fiction require it tells your mind to envision a world other than this one so it takes you from thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow and instead thinking about a story which is already halfway what dreaming is but you make it very slow so that your mind is likely to wander in between words. Make it very low volume so that it's not a large input to your brain. And that combination, I find, is really, really good for the falling asleep if you are antsy. Because mm -hmm. you're going to be focused, but it's not a, it's just enough to fo make you focused on something else. But it like eases you into dreamland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do that with, with visual um, reading. That That's part of my routine these days is just i just read until until i fall asleep but it's uh i, I think it's the same concept it's I'm, I'm focusing on the book instead of my thoughts um so it has to be something that's capturing my attention but then at the same time slowly <laughs> drift off yeah well reading is good this is sort of taking that an added step because you can do it with your eyes closed right, right. the lights off and you're already like the the gap between that and sleep is very small. Right. Whereas I might read and I get tired while reading, but then I close my eyes and I, my mind can focus on something else. Right. This is forcing your mind to focus on something external until you are actually asleep. There is no gap there. Right. What about, uh, what are ways to boost your immune function? If you're constantly getting sick, um, you know, pretty frequently, like are there things you could do? I know... Uh, or, or supplements you could take that would be uh, helpful in that regard? There are, to varying degrees. And quick pause, I am going to have to go pretty soon, but okay. I will answer the question. So things to do to try and improve immune function. The baseline is absolutely getting a good night's sleep. The there were studies done where they take people and they give them a six-hour night's sleep versus an eight-hour night's sleep and then expose them to a virus. And those who were given a – who had a six-night – those who slept for only six hours 
were something like three or four times more likely to get sick as those who slept for eight hours. So absolutely, sleep is very highly correlated with immune function. Sunlight exposure is also very important for immune function. Part of that is due to the vitamin D synthesis. So if you're not getting a lot of sun, then definitely take vitamin D to make sure that you're at the proper levels. But there does seem to be a little bit more than just that in terms of its immune regulation function. Um, people always talk about vitamin C, but really, as long as you are not deficient, it's not a massive shift. There's some data indicating that large amounts might help you get over a cold a little bit faster, but it's pretty... It's not high-quality studies. There are things like uh, echinacea, which also have some data showing that they might help reduce your likelihood of getting a cold or reduce its duration. There are things like doing nasal rinses can help to, again, reduce the duration of a cold because they can help to kill some of the nascent virus while your body is fighting it off, and therefore it doesn't replicate as much, and you might be able to get rid of it faster. That helps for things like COVID as well doing like a iodine rinse or salt rinse mm. and there are certain nasal sprays that can have a similar sort of impact there are some adaptogens that could be helpful as well if your body is having stress can have a depressing effect on your immune system there are certain adaptogenic compounds like ashwagandha chaga mushroom lion's mane mushroom maca root powder uh, these are all things that can have an adaptogenic effect which is essentially helping your body regulate stress respond to stress better and therefore can be associated with better immune function overall. Very large one is just make sure that you're not deficient in anything. Mm -hmm. Most people do not realize that they have borderline micronutrient deficiencies until they actually get the testing and work to fix it. Like I went for many years where I was getting like full micronutrient panels every six to 12 months. And the first one I got, I was borderline deficient in eight or nine things and deficient in two or three things. And then I got it to the point where I fixed all of those. But most people even eating a pretty normal diet are often going to be having some things that they're missing and that can absolutely impact many aspects of function, including mean function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Avisha, we're getting to the end of our time here. Thank you so much for joining me. This was fascinating. Before you leave, what is one thing, if you had to choose one thing about biohacking that you want me and all of our listeners to know, what would it be? You are not a large cohort. You are not an average. Instead, the single best way to make an impact on your own health is to try an intervention and have a way to measure its effect. Be concrete about it and you can figure out if something actually works for you. Do a before and after. Apply the scientific method to your own health and you can actually make changes. The single best way to make gains in the gym is by recording your lifts every time and trying to surpass them. If you do not do that, you're going to go and go and won't see much in the way of gains. The same thing applies to every aspect of health. If you record something, if you attempt a concrete intervention and measure the results, that will tell you if something works or if something doesn't and allow you to shift to something else. Now I know. Thank you so much.